Well, good evening, and thanks for joining us this evening for the last and the fourth and last in our short series on the Lord's parables about his return. Uh, our parable tonight, as Richard has said, is sometimes called the parable of the sheep and the goat. So let's read it in Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, uh, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Could you? Uh, great. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, um, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The, although we often call this passage the parable of the sheep and the goats, actually it isn't a parable. And it's not about sheep and goats. Apart from that, the title is quite accurate. <clears throat> In the story, the Lord is telling us how he will judge the nations at the time when he returns to rule this world. And in particular, the Lord focuses on the criteria he will use as judge to determine the destination of those nations at the time of his return. So first, let's try to understand something of the conditions on earth leading up to the Lord's return to this earth 
and why this judgment is necessary and fair. Earlier in the year, David Farrell uh, painted a picture of one possible interpretation of the sequence of certain events leading up to the Lord's return. He did say there are several different reasonable interpretations and we can't be dogmatic about any of them. But according to one view, the Lord comes first to take from the earth what is left of the church at that point in time. And at that point, all restraint on human government will be taken away. There will then be a new ultra-humanist regime, uh, which at first may seem wonderful, but it will end up in the most extreme totalitarian nightmare this world has ever seen. This will be called, or this has been called, the Great Tribulation. At the end of that time, unrestrained humanity will have turned uh, life on earth into the closest to hell we have ever seen in the name perhaps of freedom from religion. And at that point, Christ will return to this earth to rule. Now, whatever your views on uh, the sequence of events and your views on whether or not the church will go through part of the tribulation, it does seem clear that for a considerable number of years leading up to the Lord's return, there will be times of intense and cruel persecution of Christians. The nations will cooperate together in seeking to rid the world of Christianity. And they may well reach the point where they congratulate themselves on there not being a single Christian left on the planet. Perhaps unknown to them, the reason is that the Lord has come and has taken from this earth what was left of the church. But the nations at that time including the people, not just the leaders, but the people will have been complicit in this cruel persecution and, as the Lord will explain, fully deserve judgment. We have seen a precursor uh, to these events. Well, you may not have seen it, but it has been uh, seen in living memory during the Nazi regime in Germany before and during the Second World War when the Jews were persecuted so mercilessly. And many civilians were complicit in the persecution, even by saying nothing and doing nothing to help the Jews. So bear that parallel in mind. It's not only the leaders who will deserve judgment, but those who cooperated even implicitly in what was going on. So the nations at this time when the Lord returns will deserve to be judged. But the Lord is understanding. He knows that among the nations there were those who disagreed with the persecution and who did not cooperate. They may have been told lies about Christians and about Christ. They may never have been allowed to hear the true gospel. But there still will be those who, at great risk to themselves, help those who are being persecuted. So how does the Lord judge the nations fairly? What criteria does he use? And how does he justify his criteria and his sentencing? The Lord describes the judgment scene for us like this. Okay, Ruben, if you could just put that up. It says that he himself will sit on his glorious throne. So if you just picture the Lord 
sitting on his throne. <clears throat> I'll try to do it with hand gestures. <laughs> he will be the judge. Then he will divide everyone from the, uh, all the nations at that time into two groups. First, there will be one group on his right, that's your left, uh, who are called the sheep. And then there will be another group on his left, that's on your right, which are referred to as the goats. And at the end of the judgment, the Lord is going to invite those in the sheep group to enter into his kingdom. And those in the goat group are not going to be allowed into Christ's kingdom. And they are going to be, to end up in hell. If you could just display full screen. Sorry. Okay. We will see, I hope, that why this is a reasonable sentence. Okay, so the first question is, on what basis does the Lord Jesus decide which group to put people at that time into? How does he decide who is a sheep and who is a goat? Some people misread this story, and they assume that it's those who have been kind to people, nice to people, helpful, especially to the poor, that they will be allowed into heaven. But that is not what the Lord says. We need to look carefully at his actual words and at the explanation that he gives for his decision. Now, before we look at the Lord's explanation, we have missed out one important group uh, in our picture of the scene. And the Lord refers to this other group twice in his explanation. Did you notice that he talks about how the sheep and the goats had treated a separate third group? He says in verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers. That's a separate group. You did it to me. And in verse 45, he says, as you did not do it to one of the least of these those are neither the sheep nor the goats, but these, you did not do it to me. So there is a third group present at this judgment. They are not being judged, they do not speak, but they are evidence for the verdict. Once, uh, sorry, he, the, and the judge refers to them twice. Once when he reminds the sheep how they had treated these people, and once when he reminds the goats how they had treated the same people. So who is this third group that the Lord Jesus points to? They're not simply the poor of the world. It's much more specific than that. The first thing we can notice is that they had been persecuted. They had been hungry and thirsty. They had had their clothes taken away. They were strangers. No one would associate with them. Some of them had been put in prison. Some had ended up being sick or badly injured. Now, the first time the Lord Jesus refers to this group, do you notice what he called them? My brothers. Now, that's a very significant uh, description by the Lord Jesus. And what does that tell us? Some people think that these are ethnic Jews who had been converted and were somehow different from the church. But converted Jews are Christians and members of the church. The Lord Jesus never referred to uh, ethnic Jews 
as his brothers. Now, other people like Paul and Stephen did refer to their compatriots as brothers, but not the Lord Jesus, as far as I can find. But at least three times, the Lord Jesus refers to Christians as his brothers. Let me just remind you of these, just uh, so that, you know, I'm uh, trying to base it on the text of Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, the Lord's mother and physical brothers called for him to come home. The Lord was with his disciples teaching, and he said, Who are my brothers, my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, referring to his disciples who were busy working with him. In John 20, when the Lord Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, he sends her to tell his disciples, and these are his words, go to my brothers and tell them. And in Hebrews 2, the writer is explaining that Christians are now sons of God. And the writer says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So whenever the Lord and the judge refers to this third group as his brothers, these are Christians who had been persecuted and had been persecuted by that generation of nations uh, at the time. Some of the people standing before the judgment throne had persecuted this third group. So that then is the scene of this judgment. Now let's see the reasons why the Lord placed some of these people on his right in the sheep group and others he placed deliberately on his left. He already knew why he was doing that, but now he is going to explain why. And it all has to do with how they treated this third group in the middle. Those Christians who in this, uh, the time of persecution had been the victims of persecution. Now, when Christians endure persecution, they suffer the way the Lord Jesus suffered. We are called to endure suffering that Christ's suffering at the hand of his persecutors, Peter says, is an example that we should follow in his steps. And when people see Christians enduring suffering the way the Lord endured suffering, they're actually seeing something of the Lord Jesus himself in those Christians. That's why the Lord says to the sheep, when you responded to these persecuted Christians by actively coming out into the open and showing compassion, you were actually responding to me. Whatever you did to them, you were doing to me. Now, we find that same principle elsewhere in the New Testament. You remember the story of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus appeared to him from heaven, and the Lord didn't ask him, why are you persecuting Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? Whenever Christians suffer, the Lord feels the pain. And Saul would have treated the Lord Jesus the way he treated those Christians. And at this stage of his life, Saul was one of the goats, if I could put it like that. Later, when he realized what he had been doing and who he had really been persecuting, he repented and trusted the Lord 
and he became one of the sheep at that point. So although the people in the sheep group may not have, well, they had never seen the Lord Jesus, they may never have known the gospel properly. It may have been prohibited. But when they went against the laws of the dictatorship and helped the persecuted Christians, they were actually responding to a glimpse that they had seen in them of the Lord Jesus, particularly in how he endured suffering. And then the Lord turns to the group on his left, the goat group, if I could call that, and he uses the same reasoning. Now, why did they end up being put in that group? Well, when they had seen innocent Christians being persecuted for their faith, these people and the persecutors were getting a glimpse of the Lord Jesus in his suffering. Did they respond by showing compassion? No, they did not. Quite the opposite. This group took sides with the persecutors. They despised the suffering Christians. They refused to offer any help or kindness. They refused to associate themselves in any way with these Christians. And that is evidence, the Lord says, in their judgment, that is evidence that they would have despised Christ himself if they had seen his suffering at the cross and leading up to the cross. They would have taken the side of those who crucified the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says to them, when you refuse to show any compassion to these Christians, when you refuse to take any action, you were showing how you would have treated me. So in both groups, the way they treated these persecuted Christians reveals how they would have treated the Lord Jesus in his suffering if they had seen him at the time. That is how the Lord, the judge, separated people into either sheep or goats. Now, is that reasonable? Why is that the criterion that the Lord Jesus applies as judge? Well, there's one obvious reason, at least the one that I can see, as to why that is the most important factor for entering Christ's kingdom. Now, let me use the phrase heaven and going to heaven. Who gets into heaven? What does the New Testament tell us about heaven? Well, there's one common feature in almost every reference in the New Testament to heaven, and it is this, that we will be with Christ. For example, do you remember the story of the dying thief, that criminal who was crucified beside the Lord Jesus, but who, um, as he saw the Lord Jesus suffering, realized who he was, and he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the Lord said, today you will be, he didn't say in heaven or in paradise first, he said, with me in paradise. Notice that, with me. Later in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is talking about whether he should continue living or die, and we would say, and go to heaven. And he says he would actually prefer to die. But here is how he describes it. He said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Did you notice that he didn't say to go to heaven? He said to be with Christ. And the one thing about heaven which is absolutely certain 
is that people will be with Christ. Now think about people in the GOAT group. Would they enjoy being with Christ for all eternity? On the evidence of the choices that they had made in responding to persecuted Christians, it's clear that they would not enjoy being with Christ. When they had seen a reflection of Christ in these persecuted Christians, they had turned their backs, not just on these people, but on Christ himself. They wanted nothing to do with anybody who was like Christ. They could not be happy in Christ's kingdom. They had already turned their backs on the king repeatedly. That is one reason why these people were not allowed into Christ's kingdom. They would have still despised Christians who were like Christ. And they would hate everybody in heaven, especially Christ. There's one aspect of these parables that we haven't addressed directly, and that is what happens to those who, uh, who do not come into Christ's kingdom. And these people, we get a clear description of what will happen. So I'll try not to dodge the issue. But these people, even when they saw a glimpse of Christ, rejected him, did not want to be part of Christ's kingdom. And they would choose to have their own kingdom outside the kingdom of Christ, even if that is called hell. They think that would be more tolerable for them than being under Christ's rule. Would they be happier there? Well, perhaps for five minutes. It's interesting that in Luke chapter 16, when the Lord tells us about a man who was in hell, who spoke across a great gulf to Abraham about how he wanted someone, Lazarus, to put a drop of water on his tongue. That despite the fact that he was being tormented, he never asked to get out of there. He asked Lazarus to come to him, but he didn't say, could I go to you? So people in hell have made the choice. They have chosen to live apart from Christ, apart from God, and um, suffer something in many ways, a self-inflicted uh, life. They would quickly discover, though, that their chosen kingdom is full of people like themselves, people who despise other people, who uh, despise anybody vulnerable. It's full of people, tyrants, who still want power and who instinctively persecute the weak, the weak and are quick to hit. People who refuse to accept Christ's rule will become victims of tyrants much more evil than, and cruel than themselves, at constant war with each other. It will be their choice as well as their sentence. They would also ruin heaven for everyone else. How could we possibly enjoy being with Christ if there were lots of people there who hated Christ, who had repeatedly rejected him, and who still despised Christians and would gladly persecute them? It would be impossible to allow people like that into Christ's kingdom. On the other hand, the people in the sheep group, they had shown evidence that they would respond positively to Christ. They had shown respect and active compassion to vulnerable, 
humble, innocent people who endured suffering the way Christ did. They had proved that they would be happy to be with Christ if they had the opportunity to meet him. And they were given that opportunity and much more. Now, there's another interesting little detail about these people in the sheep group. When the Lord reminds them how they had helped him in practical ways, they didn't say, oh yes, I know I was a good person. I did lots of good works. Uh, Here's a list of them here that I've been building up. No. They said, when did we do that? They were obviously not conscious of their good deeds. They were certainly not depending on their good deeds to get into Christ's kingdom. So these people responded like true Christians. They did not expect to be accepted by God because of their good deeds. And that actually shows that they would enjoy heaven. They would not be going around boasting about the good things that they had done in life. That will be totally out of place in heaven. They didn't even remember their good deeds. The people in the goat group, however, they did not remember the bad things that they had done. They did not remember how they had supported and collaborated with the persecutors. They never noticed that they had turned their backs and dissociated themselves from the persecuted Christians. They were not even conscious of their sin, and they certainly hadn't repented of it, even though they had been given many chances to do that. So as we finish, don't be surprised that uh, it's so early, but as we finish, in the light of what Christ will be looking for at this particular judgment of the nations, let me mention two things, and just pick out two things that are important for Christians today. Firstly, in heaven, we will be with Christ for all eternity. Do you look forward to that? Do you find the Lord Jesus so attractive that you would like to spend eternity with him? If you're not sure, then start to get to know the Lord Jesus better now. Study the Gospels. See the character of the Lord, and in particular, his attitude to suffering. He wants us to have the same attitude as his in life as well as in suffering. So that's part of our mission as Christians. And secondly, the parable also reveals the importance of giving people a glimpse of what the Lord Jesus is like by our lives. When people who are not Christians look at our lives, they should really be looking at the Lord Jesus. Yet we're not perfect, but they should see things in our lives that can only be explained by having been with Christ. They should see someone who is humble like Christ, who loves people the way Christ did. They should see someone who is prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ and his kingdom the way Christ suffered. Our younger generation of Christians are likely to grow up in a world where Christians are not merely ignored as irrelevant, but they're likely to suffer suffer persecution. 
when being a Christian is actually seen as a negative thing. It may come to the point where some careers may not be open to you. Education may not be open to your children if you don't subscribe to the ideology of the day. Christians might even be jailed for teaching their children the Bible. If Christians respond by organizing politically, by arranging massive street protests demanding our traditional rights, then people will not see Christ in us. Uh, they will just see another pressure group fighting for its own interests. But if we suffer the way Christ suffered, then people will get a glimpse of Christ in us, and they will be responding to Christ, not just responding to us. And finally, remember Saul of Tarsus. He proves that there is hope for even for persecutors and for those who take the side of persecutors, provided they see something of Christ in us. Saul had just seen how Stephen was put to death. He was actively involved in that process, and he saw him die the way the Lord Jesus died. He heard him utter two of the same phrases that the Lord Jesus had uttered on the cross. And so Saul had seen something of the Lord Jesus in Stephen. And he had first resisted, but it became so overpowering that eventually, uh, when the Lord appeared to him, it was not such a big step, uh, for the Lord said to him, why do you keep kicking against the pricks, the goads that you have been experiencing in your life? There are people like Saul today in some parts of the world. There will be more in the future. And when they see Christ in us, they might come to repentance in faith and faith in Christ, even if they do not at that stage know the full gospel. The Lord Jesus said this finally in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's just commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we listen to some of the words spoken directly by the Lord Jesus as to his coming and how he will judge people, we appreciate that your judgment is fair, that you want to save as many people as possible. And only those who, through their own choice, harden their hearts, become uh, permanently recalcitrant and refuse every opportunity and call that they are given. Only those will face a future without Christ. And Father, those of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus, we do look forward to this prospect of seeing him face to face, of getting to know him even better. But we pray that even now in our lives, we would come to know him better and to live like him. We pray particularly for our young people who are growing up in a more antagonistic world as far as Christian things are concerned. Help them to be strong, to set examples to this world, and above all, to live like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.